This is episode 335 with American record holder in the 100-mile and 12-hour events, four-time national champion, running coach, and host of the Human Performance Outliers podcast, Zach Bitter. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and my singular goal is to help you improve your running by getting stronger, racing faster, preventing more injuries, and achieving more of your goals. I'm a monthly columnist for Trail Runner Magazine, a 239 marathoner, and author of the Performance Training Journal on Amazon. You can learn more about me and strength running at strengthrunning.com. And if you enjoy the show, please support our partners who are offering you some great deals on amazing products that are going to help your performances and overall health. First is Prevenex, the only supplement company that I trust. And Prevenex has a big announcement. They've just released their new product, Muscle Health Plus. It's a combination of creatine, branch chain, and essential amino acids, as well as ingredients to aid protein synthesis and absorption. Use code JASON15 for 15% off your first order at Prevenex.com. Now, if you're a master's runner, you want to build some muscle. Or maybe if you're particularly injury prone, Muscle Health Plus is going to help you hold onto your muscle and rebound faster from workouts and long runs. You can see all the details at Prevenex.com and be sure to use code JASON15 to save 15% off your first purchase. Next is our newest sponsor, CXP Sport. They make the world's most advanced underwear, engineered specifically for optimal sports performance with their patented pressure regulation technology. You can check out their Endurance XP, Run XP, and React XP performance underwear collection for the most comfortable pair of underwear you've ever worn. Use discount code CXPSTRENGTH for 20% off all their products at cxpsport.com. My guest today is a titan in the ultra running and podcasting world. Zach Bitter is a former 100-mile world record holder and now the current American record holder in both 100 miles and 12-hour events. He's a four-time national champion at the 50-mile, 100K, and 100-mile distances, spanning an impressive 10-year span from 2012 through 2021. He's the winner of the 2019 San Diego 100, the 2016 Javelina 100, and the 2012 and 2015 Ice Age 50 miler. He's also completed for Team USA's World 100-kilometer team on three occasions. And don't miss his podcast, Human Performance Outliers. We're focused on endurance in this episode. I couldn't think of a better person to discuss how to gain massive aerobic capacity than the American record holder in both the 100-mile and 12-hour distances. We're going to explore Zach's background in the sport, what it feels like when you pace a 100-miler really well in the final 20 miles, what Zach's training looks like on a macro level, and we'll attempt the big question. With all that we know, how can most runners go about building massive aerobic engines? This is also a topic that I've covered numerous times on Strength Running's YouTube channel, so if you want more actionable advice to reach your endurance goals, go to youtube.com strengthrunning. And now, without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with none other than Zach Bitter. Hey, Zach. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on. Well, I am super excited to chat with you. I feel like this conversation is a long time in the making. 
as I've been a fan of yours for years, uh, both as an athlete and as a, a coach and thinker in the running space. Uh, so full disclosure, I really like your content and advice for runners. Awesome. I guess that just means we've both been running and thinking and creating content for a long time, right? <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it feels like practically my entire life. <laughs> so I want to talk about a lot of things in this episode, all under the umbrella of building a monster aerobic engine and gaining endurance. You seem to be one of the best people for this conversation. You're the world record holder for the fastest 100 miler and the prior world record holder in the 12 hour event. Um, but before we really dive into all that, I'd love to hear more just about your background as an athlete, Zach. You know, when did you start running? When did you learn that you had a knack for incredibly long distances? Yeah. So, you know, I got interested in, in running long, I guess, in college. I didn't really realize how long, long was until then. I was a, probably a low mileage runner actually in high school and kind of a seasonal athlete more or less. But I had to kind of catch up to my peers in college. And the coach that that I had was definitely kind of more of a volume mileage based philosophy. So I started playing around with that and discovering that that sort of worked well for me. I tend to be the type of person who can respond quite well to kind of higher volume stuff. It's where, where I have to be a little more kind of careful is speed work development stuff and the inputs there are where I'll typically get, you know, a little bit of overreach if I'm not too careful or pick up an injury or something like that. So uh, mileage always was the one where I felt like I could get away with a little more than my peers where they'd get injured a little bit before I would and I could seemingly stack more miles on top of the training without that happening. So after college, I sort of just, I wouldn't say I accidentally found my way into ultra running, but I sort of did. I was aware of it at that point. I had decided that at some point in my life, I was probably going to do some ultra marathons, but I was in my early twenties at the time. So I was thinking like, that'd be something I would do like, you know, maybe in my thirties. And I happened upon a 50 mile race though. That was not too far from where I was living when I was just searching for a race to do and decided to jump into it and just kind of see what would happen. And my thought at the time was like, well, I'll do it, get the experience. So I have that kind of in my back pocket to know what this is all about. And then probably go back to training for some other stuff for a while. And I did that race, loved it, the good and the bad, and uh, ended up kind of jumping full into ultra running that following year and did like 350 milers in about a nine week time frame. And at that point I was hooked. So from it would be 2012 onward. I was basically training exclusive for ultra marathons. And so you started sort of in your mid to early 20s as opposed to your 30s as your original plan sort of was, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think I was 24 when I did my first ultra marathon and then I waited a full year to do another one. But then from there on in, it was all in on ultras. So we're going to talk a little bit more about your current training, but from a historical perspective, let's put some numbers on what you were just describing as, you know, maybe low mileage in high school, you started playing catch up in college, and then you started realizing, hey, I can run fairly high mileage compared to my peers and, and be okay with this. What kind of numbers are we talking about when when you're talking about low, medium, high mileage? Yeah, yeah. In high school, I never really exceeded like, say, 20 to 30 miles per week. That would have been like, a pretty heavy week actually. And it would have probably mostly been in season. It really wasn't until my senior year that I started even running year round. So, you know, a lot of like three, four, maybe five mile runs. And then like the occasional, like 
monster at the time, which was like a seven to eight mile run. <laughs> and then in college, it was sort of uh, an eye-opening experience. Actually, I, I didn't run my freshman year, but then my sophomore year, I transferred to the University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point, And they had a track and cross country program, pretty well respected in the division three category. So I thought, hey, if I'm going to be here and do any sort of serious running, I might as well see what see what I can do if I can be on the team. So I met with a coach and he sort of laid out just like the development process for for the athletes that he works with. And he said, like most of the incoming freshmen are encouraged to get up to around 50 miles a week in their kind of summer training leading into that first season. And that was a pretty good mark. Uh, his sophomores and juniors would oftentimes be doing like, you know, 60 or 70 miles as kind of the next stage up. And then by the time you were a senior or some of his more like experienced juniors would maybe be doing sometimes up to a hundred miles per week in the summer during their training program. So I remember thinking like, uh, there's no way I'm ever going to run like even a 90 mile week. Like in my mind, I was thinking about just like, well, if I take one day off and I run six days, how is that ever going to happen? And it was just like, mind boggling to me that that would ever be something I would do. So I was like pretty, uh, pretty like reluctant to think that that was something that would happen. But, you know, you start kind of going through the process and you start realizing like, yeah, you don't normalize a 90 mile training week when you're running, you know, 30 at that time, maybe 40 miles per week at most, uh, overnight. So you first get to 50 and then you start feeling comfortable around there and you let the adaptation sit in and then you get, to a spot where you feel like you can add a little bit more without too much risk and overreach. And then next thing you know, it, you're not too far away from 90 miles a week. So I think by my, by the summer before my senior year, I hit, uh, some 90 mile training weeks and had sort of redefined in my mind exactly what that meant. Uh, after college, I started playing around with even higher volume than that. I was hitting some hundred, 120 mile training weeks fairly consistently. Uh, I sort of like stepped away from speed work for a while though. So I was like a little bit maybe worn out from that side of the training process and kind of just reallocated almost all of my training load into just building up volume. And that's kind of how I got up to those higher numbers. And it really wasn't until I probably got a couple of years removed from that and started taking racing a little more seriously with like ultra marathons and stuff that I got back to doing some speed work development phases when I, you know, you get to a point where it's like, you start to like re recognize that that input hasn't been there for a while and it has some consequences if you don't get around to doing it. So uh, I sort of restructured the way I would train uh, at that point when I kind of had that higher mileage foundation in place. It was probably a good spot to start reintroducing some of that stuff. I love how running helped you redefine what was possible from a mileage perspective, but I just love the parallels to every other area of your life where running can help you redefine what's possible in so many other different areas of your life too. And it's just uh, a learning process that running helps reinforce and then you can apply it to so many other different spaces. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's just one of those things where I feel like my my college experience as a whole was, like I'm using nothing that I did in college <laughs> <laughs> as a as a profession at this point. But when I think about just like the big key lessons, it was like what you just said, where it was, yeah, you have this, huge thing that you're, you're, you're supposed to get to, or you're going to try to get to. But if you don't step back and realize there are multiple steps I need to do on the way here, I need to be aware of what those end goals are, but also be aware that these earlier steps need to be done and done well first before I can really start stressing about what those are. So 
that happened with running for me. It also happened every semester because you get your like your syllabus of what was coming up. You could look at literally everything you had to do that semester. And it was so easy to think like, how am I ever going to do this? But then when you actually start unpacking and realize if you spread it out over four, four months or so, then it's, it's, it's really not that bad. It's just management. Yeah, this this is really interesting to me, especially like how you went about building your mileage over the years, because I, I think taking that very methodical approach where, you know, I, I love this analogy of, you know, one small bite at a time, you're taking a small bite of the apple, you know, every quarter, every semester, and just gradually pushing the envelope with the mileage. And it wasn't like it happened in a year. You didn't start running 100 miles a week in your second year of running. You know, we're talking about year eight, nine, 10, where you finally started getting into some of those really high mileage levels. And it just shows how long it takes for the body to really adapt to such a high level of work. Uh, I'd love to fast forward a little bit to 2019. You ran the 100 mile world record, you ran 11 hours. 19 minutes and 13 seconds, which is about 648 per mile, if my math is correct. Zach, when I think about a performance like this, which is basically four sub three marathons in a row, you know, my first thought is just what an incredible performance. I, I can barely wrap my head around it. But at the other time, I'm th- the other side of the coin, I'm thinking Zach was probably in zone two for this entire time. And I'm just curious, like, what does it feel like because this is a hundred miler that you ran on a track. So it's very different than say some of the hundred milers that I'm familiar with. I go spectate the Leadville 100 uh, a lot. And, you know, I'm used to these high mileage or uh, high altitude, very high elevation change type of ultra marathons. When you're running zone two on a flat surface for over 11 hours at this easy, relatively easy effort for you, Can you describe what it feels like in the later stages of the race, you know, miles 80 to 100? What are you going through? And and does it, does this feel like an all day pace to you? Or at the end of this kind of an effort, does it feel like you're racing? I think for a lot of people, it, it, this is an alien scenario for them. So I'd love to hear very viscerally what it's like to go through it. Yeah. Yeah. That was an interesting race and actually an interesting year for me because I sort of like had a paradigm shift to some degree where I think my mindset with ultra marathon up until that point was really similar to what I think a lot of people still look at it as, which is a a little bit more of a survival event where you've got this like large task and you sort of have this this like background message in your head that no matter what you do, whether you go like like ridiculously slow relative to what you could tolerate, it's going to be painful and kind of boring and uncomfortable at the end because it's just a lot of work no matter how you get around it. So I think there's this mindset in ultra running where kind of miles 70 to 100 or 80 to 100 are just going to suck. So the mindset then goes to, well, I should bank time early when my legs are fresh, when my mind is fresh. And I've sort of started to reverse that process where I don't think of it that way. I think of it as like your mind and battery, think of it like a battery where like if I start like burning those things too much too early, then yeah, I'm going to be running on low batteries at the end of the race when I want to have energy to actually execute. So the other way to think about it is like when I get to the end of a hundred mile race, even that race you mentioned in 2019 that pace, that 648 pace is relatively easy. Like any day of the week, I could get out and run that pace without too much trouble and not think twice about it. 
So why is it difficult at the end of the, the event? So my my thought is that like it's difficult because you've mentally expended so much energy uh, potentially physically, if you went out like aggressively too fast and maybe crossed your aerobic threshold too frequently and things like that, mismanaged fuel and stuff like that. Um, versus putting yourself in a position where you're sort of just sitting there and waiting and then you get to like 70 and 80 and you start thinking, okay, this is just kind of like another long run that I could easily speed up if I needed to, but I still have to be a little patient. So you can sort of start attacking the course at the end. And I mean, I've made, I've messed this up more often than I've gotten it right for sure. But when you get it right, it's just a totally different experience where like by the end of that race, I did feel like I was racing. I actually ran my fastest splits at the end of that race. I basically like progressed from like 70 or 80 in from my pace. Uh, my actual splits for the day from the first half and the second half were two minutes faster in the second 50 miles than the first 50 miles. So it was, um, it was a little different. It wasn't like survival. And up until then I had only had one other hundred mile race where I didn't really feel like I was holding on for dear life at the end versus attacking. And that has kind of put me in a position where now I started rethinking about like, okay, step one is kind of figuring out just like what is a reasonable target. And then from there pacing in a way where you're not looking at it at a point where I'm going to be aggressive beyond my a goal early on to the degree where I set up a situation where I'm surviving at the end, but I'm, I'm more kind of attacking the course. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really an interesting thing and it's almost, a. am curious about this because so few people actually go about the racing this way that it's something where I question sometimes whether that's just a psychological thing too, where like certain runners, if you find yourself early on holding back to the degree that I did that day, you may find yourself just kind of creating anxiety too, because you're just like kind of waiting too much. I mean, I had the added advantage of it was essentially a time trial in the sense that I was really the only person going after a hundred mile split of that caliber that day. So I wasn't dealing with like the background noise of letting the field get out ahead of me or anything like that. Whereas in a lot of the other races, I suspect that's what the hiccup is sometimes where it's like if someone went out for an even paced race at a course like Western States or Leadville, they'd find themselves well behind first place. And you have to be okay with that. You have to be comfortable, comfortable with that and almost get excited about it and just know, okay, if we look at the data for just races at the hundred mile distance, even the, the top ones, it's oftentimes not just a positive split, but a relatively aggressive positive split. So if you even split or even just slightly positive split, you're going to be running faster than the people ahead of you. And then it just becomes a numbers game of like, is there enough time to close that gap? And did you actually pick the right split? And that's always the hardest part because you, unlike the marathon and shorter distances, you just can't get anywhere near race distance and training. So you are extrapolating like data from your training to determine. I think that's been my hardest uh, thing to do since then is just like uh, I had a, a, some injuries like after that race, not, not right after the race, like maybe a year and a half or so after that race, where it's like, I have kind of a protocol that worked really well for me that year, but now I have to kind of get back to this, the fitness level. I was there to make those numbers that I would have been targeting there, uh, applicable for, for a pacing strategy on a course like that. It seems like the evolution of how 100 mile races are run is now converging closer to how most other distances are run where you don't go out super fast, you know, maybe with the exception of like the 800 meters, but a, a more even split is, is generally considered 
uh, a sound racing approach in, in most other distances. You know, you don't want to go out too fast because then you just blow up. And and it seems like that's been the way in a lot of 100 milers over the years. And you're pioneering almost like the old school approach to racing where you're like, I'm not going to go out super fast and blow up. I'm going to have a more reasonable first half so that I can have a stronger second half. I'm, I'm curious why the the times records and podium finishes are still using this sort of it almost seems outdated this go out fast and don't slow down as much as your competitors approach yeah it's a great question i my theory is the sport just hasn't gotten to the point where we've seen kind of the maximal talent input that is required to force people to do it so you have a situation where uh let's say you're like a jim walmsley or someone like that, and you go to a hundred mile race, even a really competitive one like Western States, chances are like you're more fit than everyone else out there. So your incentive is not necessarily like I have to execute this from a perfect pacing standpoint. I've got some opportunity to play around here. And if we step away from even that kind of extreme example and just look at just like the front of the pack of any competitive race, I, I really think what it is, is it just takes one person to really get out a little too fast and then it's going to bring the rest of the field with it. So nobody has paid the price dearly enough, in my opinion, to change the way that they're racing. So if we had a scenario where like now, let's say like the the individuals who were or let's just imagine this scenario. Let's imagine that we have our current kind of stable of like top tier ultra marathoners at the hundred mile distance. Let's say a whole new group came and just like a dozen people, and they were equally as talented uh, as um, as this this group that's currently there, but this new group started even pacing and just started beating these guys by 20, 30 minutes because of it they would have to adjust in order to accommodate for the fact that now they're all of a sudden no longer able to compete that way because someone out strategized them essentially. I suspect that will happen. I think we'll get to a point where, you know, the, the, the level of talent that comes into the ultra marathon running scene and the hundred mile type stuff gets to the point where if you decide to race like that, you're going to pay such a dear price where it's no longer about kind of this mentality of like, I go out hard and survive and get my win, even though I had a 30 minute positive split too. If I do that, I'll be lucky to sniff a podium. So, uh, and I mean, we see this, I think at like a lot of kind of the more historic races too, where you actually have a fairly high data collection opportunity, like a race, like the JFK 50 mile. Um, you can get even more specific, I guess, with some of the like more timed events like I've done or the the loop type courses where the terrain doesn't change. So you can really actually look and see exactly what an even split would look like. Um, those just tend to be a little less tested in the current era. So I find it sometimes more interesting to almost look at the trail side of things. I love hearing your perspective on sort of the evolution of race strategies in some of these really long races. I'd love to switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit more about the training side of things. You know, this this is the endurance episode. Uh, you're the the world record holder in 100 miles. So you're such a great person to ask about this. Um, let me ask something very specific that is specific to you, Zach. You know, I saw on your Instagram recently, you ran an easy base run at a heart rate of 149 beats per minute. I think your average pace was 627 per mile. Now, I look at that and I go, 
well, that just seems like a normal base run for Zach Bitter. But I'm sure a lot of runners might look at that and think, there's no way that was easy. There's no way that's zone two. You're clearly in zone three at a heart rate of 149. What do you have to say to that? And, and I, I'm gonna, we're going to talk a little bit more about zone two and zone three. But, you know, from this specific example, you know, how do you think about heart rate, easy runs, keeping things manageable, and, and what actually is easy for you? Yeah, I'll just quick um, jump in with, uh, I'm actually the 100 mile American record holder now. So it did get broken. I don't want to take too much credit for <laughs> um, one time for, for, world record holder. Yeah, I, I was at one point. Yeah, I, I'll, they can't take that away from me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's it's it makes sense. I mean, I get questions about that a lot, too, because people are, um, they're curious. And, and, you know, with heart rate, too, it's one of those things where it's like, you can have some some variance with that as well as like, where is your actual like zone two number going to cross over at? So, you know, for me, like I have a little bit of a higher kind of max heart rate, I suspect in terms of just like where my ranges would maybe get, uh, get calculated. But if I'm in like the 150 to 155 range, that's basically where my aerobic threshold is going to be. So if I start crossing over and I start pushing up into kind of like the high 150s, low 160s, that's where I start crossing over into that territory where like I'm going to like take on a much bigger training load if I continue this for a meaningful duration versus kind of in that that mid to low 150 range. That's a range where I mean, I've had 100 mile races where my average heart rate is in the 150s. So it's just like, you know, it's one of those things where it's like just when you look at what you can sustain for certain durations, it starts to make a little more sense to people. Um, yeah. And it's just one of those things where I just use that as kind of like a, a data point. Since I know that I can run, you know, 12 plus hours at a heart rate of around that 150 number, my goal then becomes how do I get my pace as fast as possible at that intensity? And the lower I can get that, the more tools I'm like, or the, the I guess you could say the more mistakes I can make, but like the more like opportunity I have to like have a smooth, well-executed hundred mile race, uh, without feeling like things are going to kind of fall apart on me. If I make something, make a small error or something like that, I have a little more flexibility if I have like a, a mile that's a little faster than it should be or something like that. So my goal in training anytime I'm doing a hundred mile race is essentially to kind of first establish a strong base at that spot, drop in kind of a speed work development phase after that to kind of just move that, move the pace at that system, uh, as low as I can get it reasonably speaking with the time frame I'm dealing with and then go through a long run development phase specific to the hundred mile with uh, kind of targeting around that heart rate range or whatever I plan on trying to sustain for the duration of the event. And yeah, I mean, it's, um, I've gotten that pace down. I mean, in optimal conditions, I rarely get those now in Austin just because the routes I've chosen and then the humidity sometimes just kind of like toys with a lip. When I was living in Phoenix, I had like almost two optimal training conditions at times where it's like, it's almost uncomparable, uh, when you go anywhere else where you get these long canal path stretches, pancake flat, no turning, you'd go under, under passes over the busy roads. You hardly even had to stop. You get a nice, cool, dry morning out there. And I, I, I had a, I had a training block where I was just at a 150 to one, like 155, it would have probably been closer to 155 average. I was hitting like six flat and maybe even a pinch under six flat for some of those runs. So that's kind of like when I can get it down to that far, that's when I know like, okay, if I go out to like a, a track event where it's really controlled, if the weather isn't bad, then 
if I'm targeting a pace similar to what I did in 2019, there's enough buffer between there and what I could do at a heart rate that isn't isn't super unsustainable for for that duration. It it, it gives me a lot of confidence to be, feel like okay, I can I can kind of stick this pace without worrying about it being too aggressive. Now I just got to focus on the fueling and hydration side of things. You're making me feel better that my pace is sometimes so slow when I'm at 6,000 feet altitude, like running up the side of a mountain. <laughs> <laughs> That'll slow you down my for heart sure. Rate's yeah. like 170. <laughs> <laughs> now, Zach, you've mentioned aerobic threshold, this, this zone being, you know, somewhere in the, the low to mid 150 heart range for you. When you say aerobic threshold, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So it's just kind of like that first ventilator crossover point where I would say like a lot of people, I mean, the problem with any of these, these endurance terminologies is there's probably like half a dozen names for everything we talk about. And then it's like the actual like training coaching, like terminology, and then like the physiological terminology they often use. So like most people listening that are like trained, they'll probably see that as like the top of zone two, where if you go any faster, you're going to cross over into zone three. Or the way I like to look at it is like, it's the very end of the easy category. If I go past that, I'm now entering moderate intensity and you're going to just have like everything from just the sustainability of that duration from like a metabolic standpoint, as well as just the way you can be able to physically tolerate it is going to start to drop a lot more aggressively. So it's a, I call it like kind of the no-go zone with 100 miling because it's like even if you get on these super controllable courses like I sometimes do, I just think when you're pushing past your aerobic threshold for any meaningful amount of time, you're starting to really play with fire. Yeah, I, I just had a, a exercise physiologist on the podcast. And, and like you said, you know, the training and coaching terms are usually a little bit different than some of the physiology terms. And he probably would call it your zone two threshold. Um, you know, right when you start crossing into zone three, what, what are your thoughts on zone three? Cause there's this current climate in the fitness world, not just even in the running world, but a lot of folks who are interested in just getting in shape, staying in shape. I think the current longevity, uh, trend is a great one. And zone two has been featured very prominently in some longevity circles, but is zone three really that bad for us? You know, is it like, Let's not run anything in zone three. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a great question. And the way I look at this is if we think of it as like an intensity spectrum and there's these kind of like crossover points that we've chosen to measure, uh, like aerobic threshold, lactate threshold and VO2 max are probably the three that really stand out to most people. They just tend to be like these data points where like there's there's probably some shifting going on that we should be aware of when we cross over from those. But really when you go out for a run, I like to kind of rethink it as like we're you're going to have a training load component to that workout and none of it's good or bad necessarily it just kind of depends on what are your goals. So if I if I have someone go and run like a zone 3 run or they just happen to run a zone 3 run it's not that that's like bad like they failed because they weren't doing something in the zone two category or they weren't going fast enough to be like really doing a proper like lactate threshold, like tempo run or a VO two max short interval session or something like that. It would just be like, well, you're going to benefit from that. Like if that training load is something that isn't something you've already adapted to, it's going to create a stimulus and it's going to have a bleed over effect into those other areas. It's not like because you ran in zone three, the only thing you're going to be better at is zone three going forward. 
it just may be a little bit less direct. So then I start looking at it as like, what's the opportunity cost of that? So if I'm working with somebody and our goal is to really kind of build their lower intensity foundation, we may be careful with how often they're crossing over zone two into zone three, because the opportunity cost of them doing zone three work is likely at the amount of volume we can get away with, with optimal recovery in the category we're trying to train for. Or if we switch over to a speed work development phase and they start doing zone three work, like we're not going to probably be up into like what I would like them to do for like short intervals and long intervals, but it is going to be a big enough stressor where they may end up spending a lot of time in zone two so that, or they may, they may be in a position where they're having a hard time executing their more higher quality work because they're adding a big enough stressor that they're not really recovering enough for that next session or to the degree where they can maintain the quality for that higher stressor stuff. So I think it gets a bad name because it tends to be in between a lot of the focal points. Where it gets interesting for a lot of people, though, I think is the marathon, because now zone three kind of becomes race pace for a lot of people. You have a situation where if you're not like the very back of the pack or the very front of the pack, your race is going to probably be right in between your aerobic threshold and your lactate threshold. It isn't until you become like a two, low two hour marathoner that you're pushing right up to your lactate threshold for race day. And it's probably not until you're well in the back of the pack where like aerobic threshold is something that you can't cross over in, in a race of duration of say four or five hours. So, uh, then it becomes a thing where it's like the opportunity cost of say doing something in zone three for someone training for a marathon should be low at the end of the plan because you've done all the work that would prepare you to now get more specific with the race intensity that you're going to train. And then you should start thinking about how do I spend as much time as I can get away with and recover from working on what I'll actually be doing on race day. So I think sometimes like it, it gets a bad name because it doesn't fit this nice clean, like target, like we see with zone two, with threshold, with VO2 max, we're going to see a VO2 max push coming pretty soon here. If we haven't already, that's going to be the next one. I think that kind of gets its popular, uh, um, health longevity, uh, uh, nod to it, but, um, yeah, you probably just won't see zone three. Cause I think they'll probably always look at that as something where it becomes, unless your performance suggests to do it, which I think most endurance athletes are going to have a time when that would be the case. Uh, but if you're thinking of it through just the general health sphere, then they're thinking about, well, we have a finite number of inputs we can get away with, with their, like, what does the data say? Like, this many hours of zone two, this many like four minute intervals at VO2 max. And, and they're going to just try to prioritize that and be as efficient as possible. And zone three, unless your goal target is to run a fast endurance race, feels inefficient because it's kind of not hitting either of those kind of popular longevity metrics that they came up with. So that's what I kind of if we want to look at it like purely through the endurance lens, though, I would say like the cleanest criticism of it is if you are focusing on those specific points, then it does kind of put you in a position where it's kind of too fast to be in that base building if it's a meaningful amount of your training and it's too slow to be like really kind of targeting that. That may not matter though. I actually think there's a huge component for zone three training, especially if you're looking for like a muscular endurance input to your to your training when you get to a point where, like take me for example, if I see like a plateauing, in my like zone two, but I'm not at a point where I'm going to drop a real, uh, a, 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 a speed work development phase because of the timeline for my next race. I might just start adding some zone three, like 
maybe some zone three uphill work and work on some like kind of muscular endurance stuff where I'm not really afraid of that. And I'm not really concerned if it bleeds into some of the volume I'd spend at zone two, cause I've already done a lot of work there where it's like in order for me to increase the adaptations I'm going to get from that, I would have to add more volume on top of something that's already very, very high volume. So you start getting a lot, lot less opportunity to kind of keep doubling down on that input. So if I'm understanding this right, and I just want to make sure it sounds like Zone three isn't inherently bad, but it's just not the the more common direct zones of effort that are really going to contribute to a lot of your improvement. So if you're someone who's really focusing on building your mileage, zone three might negatively impact your ability to keep building volume because it's a little bit too difficult. And on the flip side to that, if you're someone who might be training for a marathon, when you start doing a lot of marathon pace work, you're probably in zone three. And that's actually a very specific case study of using zone three productively to help you achieve your goals. So it's it's not really good or bad. It's more, let's look at this from a nuanced perspective and see where does it actually fit your goals and where is it maybe detracting from the training goals that you might have. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. I look at it all as kind of like opportunity costs for the, for a lot of this stuff where like, if I want to maximize the amount of like, say VO2 max short intervals, I can get into a week and recover from. So then over the course of say four, six, maybe even eight weeks, I'm going to get the most amount of volume at the highest quality at that input. Then if I'm doing a lot of zone three work in between those sessions, it's likely going to reduce that number that I can get to. And on the other side, it's kind of the same. If my goal is to see how much volume I can stack up at zone two or, or underneath, if I'm starting to kind of drift up into zone three too frequently, it's likely going to put a lower ceiling on, on how much of that volume I'm able to get. So, so if you've checked those boxes though, or those boxes aren't in a position where it's ready to check, I think that's where you get a little more opportunity or like in the case of the marathon where eventually you, you got to start doing the specific thing you'll be doing on race day. So Zach, you said something earlier that I, I really wanted to pounce on because it was just fascinating. Um, you said something along the lines of my goal is to run faster with a lower heart rate. If we could boil down the holy grail of distance running to one goal, I mean, that's it. That's the key to running faster. It's basically keeping your heart rate low while improving your speed. That's going to have bleed over effects to practically any type of race that you really want to run. So Zach, I want to ask the big question, how do we do this? How do we go <laughs> about building the aerobic engine that's capable of running very fast while in lower heart rate zones? What are the ingredients that contribute to this holy grail goal that we're looking for? Yeah, I like this question. And I, I, I also like to answer it in a, what I think is kind of more of a practical way, because you end up in this situation where there's probably too much individuality in terms of like how much someone can tolerate if everyone was given an infinite amount of time to train. So I try to step away from that because that's just not the reality for really anyone other than professional athletes. And even for them, there's a, there's a, there's a spot before they run out of time where they're going to probably break down and have a margin of diminishing returns. But let's just say, for example, we're working with somebody who is, uh, you know, they've got a full-time job, they've got a family, they do all the normal stuff but they're also training for this race and they sit down and determine, well, I have 10 hours per week to dedicate towards training for this event. If I'm coaching them, my first 
my first thought is like, first we're going to unpack kind of what they're doing. So we have a background of kind of where their global fitness is at and like where their inputs are coming from and try to get an idea of like where their strengths and weaknesses are at. But from there, in most cases, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to try to maximize that amount of volume they have available to them at low intensity training. So if they come and they're running six or seven hours a week, I'm not going to start throwing speed workouts at them. I'm going to first say, okay, let's first get up to that 10 hours at this kind of zone two intensity per week and see what paces that's producing. And as long as we're seeing that pace coming down, we can spend more time in that. Uh, our, our, it's, everyone has a timeline usually. So eventually you want to kind of pivot from that. Uh, in most cases, if they have like a real strict race goal or something like that. But if someone says like, I don't have a specific race I'm trying to necessarily peak for, or I do, but my long-term goal is just get as good as I possibly can. I don't care if it comes at the expense of these first few races. We're going to sit in that category basically up until we see a plateauing where their pace at that heart rate that is kind of at their zone two, the top of their zone two, just is no longer moving with that 10 hours per week input. When we start seeing that plateau, that signals to me that we have, unless we add another adaptation that increases their training load, they're just going to essentially maintain at that. So from there, I'm going to drop a speed work development phase with them because I don't have the option of pulling a lever of saying, oh, well, we'll just go up to 12 hours per week and see if we can get more movement on it. For that particular person and their circumstances, 10 hours is the limit. So we're not going to mess around past that. Um, if it was someone who's got more then maybe we would pull that lever further, but then I'll drop that speed work development phase. And I'm going to do that in an order of least to most specific based on the race intensity that they're doing. So if I'm working with someone training for say like a hundred mile race, this is where we might do some like shorter intervals, like VO two max target, uh, or the velocity at VO two max target for their short intervals, then move into some longer intervals closer to maybe their lactate threshold as their speed work development kind of progression versus someone who's doing like a 5k, uh, or a 3k or something a little bit shorter, we may start out with like their threshold workouts first, and then start kind of phasing in some VO two max short intervals, because we want to be practicing those short intervals closer to their race. Cause that may actually be close to their closer anyway, to their, uh, their race day intensity. And that speed work development phase is going to be the thing that kind of like will improve once we go through that development and then go back. So if I would just do that first 10 hours, see the plateauing, then do the speed work development phase. When we come back to that, that's where I often find is now when we come back to it, reducing the speed work volume and just targeting that zone two again, we see a faster pace at that same heart rate or that intensity that they were doing before. So I tend to look at these things as like things like the heart rate and the intensity that you feel when, or your perceived effort when you're doing something like a zone two, a threshold workout, a VO two max workout, those things are constant. Those aren't going to necessarily change, but what we, what will change with the moving target is your pace at that, assuming everything else is controllable enough where it's not like you were doing it in 60 degrees and now you're doing it in hundred degrees or like your example before where you're training on the, the, the Phoenix canal path and you go up to Leadville, <laughs> you're going to get a little bit of variance in the pacing then too. But I find like, let's, let's get really good at identifying kind of how it feels to run those different intensities and work at moving things like pace in like an environment. And a lot of people, what they'll do is we'll just pick like a route 
that we can kind of more or less be a little more accurate with our predictability. And this is maybe where treadmills sometimes can be useful for people because they can just control that environment a little more. And that doesn't mean you have to get on the treadmill all the time, but we may just do an assessment every, every few weeks to kind of see where things are at with that more controlled environment and see if our inputs are actually doing what we're trying to do, which is uh, lowering that pace at that, that intensity that we're targeting. What if someone doesn't have that much time to train? Is the advice just scaled back to lower volume levels? Because I know that 10 hours a week, you know, we're looking at almost 90 minutes a day of, of, of running. And for a lot of runners, that's either impossible with their schedules or their body just won't handle that. Um, so if someone's maybe only capable of, of half that, five, six hours a week, is, is the advice the same, except we're just going to continue to maximize uh, our time at that zone two effort sort of as a base phase at the beginning before moving into that more speed oriented phase? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if it, I always find just when, when working with people, like we sit down and we're like, well, what are your non-negotiables in the sense like, like what, what life circumstances are we just not going to be able to compete with, with training? And if that adds up to a scenario where they have five to six hours per week to dedicate, or, or if it's just like, that's what I'm willing to do for one reason or the other, then we're going to work within that framework. I always find that like, if we want to kind of sum everything up as like the most important thing, it's going to be consistency. So if I'm programming 10 hours a week for someone who's got five to six available to them, it doesn't matter how great my programming is. They're going to probably be inconsistent. They're going to feel defeated all the time because they're not able, they're missing essentially every other workout at that point. Um, it's just going to be a bad, a bad setup. So you got to kind of work with what they have available. So yeah, you would do that. It would be that same protocol, just at a lower volume target. And then that will impact speedwork development phase to some degree too, because I'm just less likely to have as the the nice thing about having a really large volume foundation is it also opens up the door for a higher amount of volume you can spend at the speed work development phase so this is why the best in the world we see oftentimes doing high volume stuff we don't see like olympic marathoners running 50 miles a week because they would get there there's some very very good people running very fast marathons at 50 miles a week but when you get to the the level of olympic athlete if you're unable for one reason or the other to put in that much the stimulus, essentially, there's going to be someone of equal ability that is, and then they're going to have a training advantage over you. Zach, let's talk a little bit about your current training. I'd love to hear how you structure things for yourself. Uh, I'm not sure if it's too much different from the, the entire approach that you just outlined, but maybe we can talk a little bit about, you know, when you are training for a hundred miler, what kind of a training cycle do you typically look for, for, for that kind of a build, you know, in terms of weeks, um, you know, do you set mileage targets? Uh, what kind of workouts might you run for that? Like, how do you put everything together? Yeah. So I set target, I set, I would say I set like kind of loose, like volume or mileage targets, but then I'm looking at like, I'm looking at certain things within them as kind of like the indicators as to whether I can add more or not before I kind of move on to the next stage. So oftentimes there there's, there's uh, the urgency is eventually you have to get around to picking a race. So like, regardless of what timeline I would like, if I'm going to do a race, like say in June, then I know, like if I'm starting today, I have this much time. So then there's like, there's a certain amount of like spots where I'm going to kind of transition into the next phase and I'll take what I get for this race based on 
uh, kind of what I have available to me versus like if you had an endless amount of time. But since I've been doing this for a while, usually that's not not a problem I'm dealing with and I can pick races far enough out because there's enough opportunities to like line the timeline up where I think I'm going to kind of hit those transition points when I would anyway. So the way that usually looks is like the beginning of my plan. I'm just trying to confirm that, that I'm able to kind of hit some historic standards in terms of my pace at that kind of zone two or that base foundation. Um, I'm usually trying to get up to a point where I'm, I'm, I'm putting in without too much trouble, uh, a pretty reasonable amount of volume per week. So that'll usually be somewhere in the neighborhood of like 12 to maybe 15 hours of, of running, running volume, or, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of usually around a hundred miles, uh, 120 maybe at the most during that phase. And then that'll usually be like a phase of like, usually at most, unless I'm coming off an injury or like an extended off time, like eight weeks at that point, usually I'm at a point where like, all right, I either need to add more volume or like a speed work development phase because I'm just not seeing this number go down any further uh, at this intensity with the volume inputs I'm doing. So then I'll do a speed work development phase that follows least specific to most specific. So if I'm training for a hundred miler, I'm going to do a phase of uh, short intervals that are going to be pinned to like an intensity I can sustain for about 12 minutes in an all out effort. And I'm going to be doing those at like a, at a one-to-one -one work to rest ratio. So if it's say like, two minute intervals, I'll do two minutes on two minutes off and I'll spend, uh, anywhere between four to eight weeks with that being kind of like a, a, a target that I'll do for, uh, for, for my kind of key workouts for the week, uh, before kind of moving into long intervals that I'm going to pin to an intensity that I could stay in for, uh, like 60 minutes on a race day setting, um, for people that are looking to maybe like kind of find how to maybe work this in their own training, like 30 to 60 minutes is kind of like a goal target for this intensity. I really like just doing like, I mean, you could always go into a lab and get like a, a metabolic test done and get all these numbers like spelled out for you, which, um, to some degree can be a gold standard, but a lot of people aren't going to be able to, or are going to do that. So I find like most people are going to still want to kind of use a field test of some sorts to determine some of these things. I just like a 30 minute time trial, because if we're looking at an intensity that's 60 minutes on race day setting at its kind of like height for the average runner, then we're looking at a scenario where like, if I have you go out in just like an average training day and do that workout or, or do try to try to pinpoint what that workout is, the odds of you getting anywhere near what you'd be able to do tapered at a race setting with all that goes into that with a full development it's just not going to get to be 60 minutes. So we're probably going to get closer to that number by doing a 30 minute time trial and training. And that can also tell them you don't have to absolutely wring yourself dry on this either. Cause we're targeting the low end of what this intensity will likely entail for you on a race day setting. So I can tell them to go do 30 minutes, give it a good hard push. Don't feel like you have to completely destroy yourself, but make sure you are focused and giving it a good effort. And then I'm going to use that intensity to do like some long intervals based some long intervals off of. So that next phase of training, I'll start to phase. If I'm doing something as long as a hundred miles, I'll probably actually like focus on some of these inputts as, as few as one at a time for the most part. Uh, so in something shorter, I might blend some of this stuff and do a more kind of traditional like structure with speed work where you're doing like a short interval session and a long interval session in the same week. And you're kind of building those in tandem. Uh, but for hundred miling, since it's so far to the lower end of the intensity spectrum, 
I tend to just go least specific with the short intervals first, transition, almost phase those out, go into the long intervals. I'll spend a similar amount of time, you know, sometimes four to six weeks, sometimes a little longer than that, uh, before I get to a point where now I'm like, if I'm like, if I'm coming off like more than one training cycle or even multiple training cycles, these windows usually shorten because I just don't need as much input to kind of get back to where I want to be. Uh, so sometimes it can be as short as four to six weeks where I'll do like an ultra marathon long run development phase. If I haven't done a lot of the ultra marathon stuff for a while, for one reason or the other, sometimes I'll stretch out a little longer, eight, sometimes even 10 weeks where now I'm kind of pulling back on speed work and replacing that training load input with more volume. And during these phases of training, this is where I'll get my highest volume during the year. Cause now I'm targeting like the pace that I'm going to try to target on race day. If it's like a controllable race, like a track where, um, I might go out to say, actually get out on a track and do like a three, three and a half hour run where I'm hitting like, you know, something in the mid six minute range, uh, to try to replicate the intensity that I'll be doing on race day and just stack as much volume as I can on that kind of fitness that I developed through that foundational phase and that speed work development phase. So the way I look at that is like, since once I've moved to race intensity target, I want to be doing that at the highest, just kind of general endurance fitness I can get, because then every minute input from that is going to be a little bit at a higher quality, uh, versus if I come into that kind of like unprepared or less fit specifically to just like more of a more general endurance event. Um, and yeah, that's kind of the peaking phase. So, I mean, there'll be times where I'll be hitting like 150 miles per week during that because I've removed a huge component of, of intensity. And a lot of times that's even a little bit lower than even what I would be pushing up to for kind of that base development phase from a pacing standpoint. Um, sometimes I'll keep in some like kind of threshold workouts if I'm feeling like I'm bouncing back from workouts really quickly and I'm just getting like, I want to kind of just test to see kind of where that fitness is still at and, and kind of keep in the back of my mind that like a minimal input will maintain a lot of that and just kind of keep, keep some of that, some speed work in there that I don't see as being a big opportunity cost, but I'm going to be putting a lot of my value at that point into like back-to-back -back longer sessions where I'm kind of pushing a little bit more volume into like two or three days. And I'm getting really specific with both the environment and the environment if I have, have access to it. But, um, the intensity specifically of what I'm trying to do on race day. And those weeks, sometimes I'll get up to sometimes even some 20 hour training weeks and things like that. With the volume that you do, is it, is it entirely running or are you adding any sort of aerobic cross training to your programming as well? Just to sort of like pad the, the volume numbers or are you strictly running? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, in, in the past, it was strictly running. I would do like some strength work and things like that in mobility. Uh, I've done a little more cross training now. Uh, I find with like, I find with the cross training stuff, I think there's probably a bigger value add for that. If I was going to do say like a mountain race where there's going to be some uphill component to it and things like that, then I think like stretching out the volume on, on some cross training stuff has been useful. Although I will say this, like, I'm 37 now I'm turning 38 in a few weeks actually. So it's like, it's one of those things where like impact is the big limiter with running and endurance when it comes to endurance sport. I mean, there's a reason why triathletes and cyclists have higher volume training plans oftentimes than road runners do. So there's, there's, there's some value to that. So the way I usually do look at that is if I'm going to say add a cross training thing, I ask myself like, what is the value for this? And is it interfering with 
what I would be able to do running wise. So if I'm capable of running more without becoming a negative, I'm usually going to default to that. If I have a scenario where I can add this cross training modal without it interfering with what I'm trying to target on the running side of things, I will do that from time to time. But, uh, it's, it's usually quite minimal. I'm not doing like any like long cycle cycling sessions or anything that in most cases, um, usually it becomes more common. Let's say I'm doing like a trail hundred mile or something like that. I might get on like a, a bike or something and do some, some cycling. Cause I just think that mechanic is going to feed into like an uphill climb a lot more specifically than it will like a flat track or something like that. Um, I might do some like some more, like, I guess you could call it like aerobic strength work where like I'm pushing or pulling a sled. Um, I'll do this muscular endurance kind of like lower body session that at times can kind of cross over into something that could be considered cross training to some degree where it's like a series of like, um, either body weight or, or light weighted sessions of like lunges, jumping squats, jumping split squats, uh, box steps and things like that. And if you get to kind of like the final stages of the progression with those, like, you know, I can do a series of those where like my, my heart rate might be drifting up into like the one twenty one thirties for it because of, uh, just like kind of the frequency of that, um, of that kind of circuit of training. So those are kind of the, some of the things that I'll, I'll usually put in most of my cross training tends to be strength work though. It's not like necessarily specific to, uh, the running, the running side of things. What does the strength training look like? Is is it primarily for injury prevention reasons? Like you're trying to stay healthy with all the volume you're doing, or are you trying to gain power or, or force production or any of those types of goals? Yeah. For like the muscular endurance stuff. So like the, the, the lunging and the box steps and that sort of stuff, that would be more to kind of build that, like that power side of things. I'll do some other stuff just from like an injury maintenance standpoint and, and just from a balancing standpoint. So some, uh, I'll usually do like some hex bar deadlift stuff as like the, is the most of the two legged things I'll do, but then I'll do like, uh, I'll do like a series of, um, I'll get on like a leg press machine, but do like a single leg press to try to get like, just, just to, for, for an injury prevention, single leg, make sure I'm get, producing the same from one leg to the next. Cause if I notice like one is getting a little bit imbalanced or like less strong, the other one, I want to be aware of that and address it before, uh, it becomes something where I start favoring that one leg over the other. Um, I'll do some other stuff like, uh, uh, like, like, weight like bridges and things like that that are going to be good for kind of like the post tier chain to pair with like the hex bar deadlift um that that muscular endurance routine is something that i'm going to do a lot more more frequently especially as i get kind of closer to the race versus kind of some of the more foundational stuff i find like if if i'm able to do the foundational lifts at like a level where like i'm not like super weak I don't know that there's going to be a huge value add to kind of continue to progress those. So things like the hex bar deadlift, even like squats and stuff like that. If I'm able to like just easily do like a basic kind of like three set series of those and be like somewhere between like body weight or two X body weight, that's probably the spot where like, I don't know that I'm going to do myself a whole lot of favors for like hundred mile racing by saying getting any stronger than that. So at that point it becomes more of a focus of, how do I kind of train my body in the specific movements that are going to be useful for things like you said, like power production, things like that. And that's where I think like that muscular endurance routine is going to be more productive. So usually what I'm doing is 
I'm doing some of those other stuff maybe earlier in the season just to kind of see like where things are at and make sure I'm not, I don't have any deficits. But once I know that those deficits aren't there, then I'm going to try to get a little more specific with it. Yeah. And if if you were say racing for something like the 5k, then yeah, maybe you would want to get stronger and and really be able to help with a lot more force production and your finishing kick and things like that. But I, I like how you're being very specific with your approach to strength training. Now, Zach, let's, let's try to tie all this into the 30 to 40 mile per week runner. They're training for half marathons and marathons. What are the low hanging pieces of fruit that you might encourage this person to go after in their training to really take their training to the next level? And, and, and if I could be so bold as to guess, is one of them just more volume? It seems like <laughs> more zone two easy volume is, is probably the answer, especially if you're only running 30 to 40 miles a week. Yeah, it's a good question. I would say like the lowest hanging fruit for anyone is going to be somewhat dependent. I, I, I used to answer this question a little more like quickly and like without as much thought, but I've had so many new people come to me for coaching now that are coming from like just a totally different discipline. You get like these hybrid athletes and stuff now too, where it's like, if I had someone historically, if I had someone running 30 to 40 miles per week, I would just usually assume, and we'd clarify, but I usually assume they've spent a lot of that doing low volume already or low intensity already. So like, then it's just like trying to decide is that what they're doing or is that 34 miles a week with like a bunch of speed work, in which case maybe we do want to kind of back off for a little bit and just see where we can get them with that all being just a low intensity volume input. But now I'm kind of having a scenario where like could be somebody who has like a huge development phase that's almost leaning towards the anaerobic side of things. So for them, I'm definitely going to do a lot of low intensity stuff, try to fill that volume up for a while. And just, I'm going to see quite a bit of movement in most cases in their pace at that, at that intensity, uh, sometimes for, for a fairly long period of time versus someone that's sort of already maximized that input. So their low hanging fruit at that point is going to be probably some speed work. So we can still maintain that 30 to 40 miles per week, but increase their training load. Cause we are adding some faster running components to it. It sounds like you're sort of dividing people up into almost two buckets. I know this is oversimplifying things, but you've got your more anaerobic power sport. Maybe I played basketball or baseball and I've been lifting weights, but I don't really do a lot of just easy, low intensity running. For those people, you need the easy volume. And then for those people who might be running 30 to 40 miles a week and they've been doing it for a long time, but maybe without a lot of intensity, the next step for them is to actually add more intensity, try to move those numbers that way. And then hopefully they sort of meet in the middle and then you can start, you know, a more traditional approach for them. Did I sort of get that right? Yeah. Yeah. Another way to kind of think about it is like if someone comes to me and they're like, I've been running 30 to 40 miles per week. And then I ask them about some specifics or we look at like their profile on most people are logging their stuff now. So like you look at wherever they're logging that and it's like, and we determine like, oh yeah, for the past few months, you've been doing this 30 to 40 miles per week. And it's at this kind of zone two intensity. And you've more or less been running the same pace the entire time. If we know they're not doing more than that 30 to 40 miles per week, and I just continue to have them do what they had been doing, I'm likely not going to see a whole lot of, uh, of change. So they're essentially kind of like working with me to kind of continue what they were doing, which is just a plateau. <laughs> so for that person, then it's like, yeah, we need to increase their training load somehow. 
Um, and usually that's either going to be through increasing volume or uh, adding some some intensity so that they uh, kind of increase their training load without adding extra volume. So um, like you said, it's a lot of it's like circumstantial because you might have someone who's doing 30 to 40 and they find like, yeah, I can add a little bit of extra volume, in which case we might play around with that first and, and maximize that first. But um, if not, then yeah, we're definitely kind of moving into something a little more higher or higher intensity than they were we're doing what what about the runner who might be completely new and you know they've been running for two weeks they've just gone out there a couple times they've jogged around they they're like hey i actually really like this i want to do this more consistently how would you start building their fitness level for the true beginner is it a hybrid or would you focus on intensity or easy volume first Mm-hmm. Yeah, if they're new, I'm almost always going to focus on easy volume first and try to get them to stick with that as long as they can. Um, I can appreciate there's like there's two things that usually devi- or like I'll pivot from that at an individual level. And one would be like most people are coming with in that situation. They're coming to me because they're also like, oh, I've got this this 5K I'm going to do on whatever date it happens to be. Or like it it could also be something where like, I want to keep them interested in the sport too. So we may like step away from some of that lower intensity base building, even if we felt like there could be some more progress there to do like a speed work development phase, just so they can get an idea of just like, this is kind of like some of the inputs that we're going to work on and give them tools that they can use later on as well versus just that one tool. Uh, Cause I find it to be really valuable for someone to get good at understanding what it feels like to do those different things. So to the degree where like if some of the people I've worked with for the longest amount of time, it's it's pretty easy to like communicate with them because I can just say like, like I could just say, okay, we're going to do base, a base run, which is zone two. Um, they know what that feels like. So I just got to tell them how long to do it or I want them to do short intervals. They know what that feels like. So I could just send them out with something that allowed them to see the the time duration we're going for. And I wouldn't even probably have to worry about whether they were hitting the right intensity. I can just look at the data afterwards and assess where they're at versus worrying about whether they're like in the right zone or not. So I think there is some value to kind of practicing some of that stuff early on so you can get closer to being able to recognize where those or what those workouts feel like. So your kind of perceived effort gauge starts getting some some repetitions. Yeah, I love that. That's speaking to the idea that you you should just expose yourself to a wide variety of different types of stimuli because then you're you're going to be able to better know effort levels and paces and yourself as a runner and that's really going to help you make wiser training decisions, I think. Yeah, I was just also going to add one more thing too because it's like people have like we talked about me in the beginning where I tended to respond to volume and I had to be a little more careful on speed work, but like there are people on the total opposite end of the spectrum with that. So I find like when you do kind of add some of those inputs too, you can kind of discover kind of where that person first, where their global fitness is at, and then maybe where their strengths and weaknesses are at. Cause that can tell you kind of how and when to pull some of those levers later on in their training too. Super actionable. Thank, thanks for kind of tying this into a lot of different types of runners so that no matter where you are on the spectrum, if you're someone who's a high responder to volume or you respond really well to speed work, you sort of know some of the inputs that are going to drive fitness gains for you, but then also some things that that you can add that you're not very good at so that you can work on. Um, thank you, Zach, for your expertise today, your time. Uh, you make some of my favorite running content on the internet. So I want to make sure our listeners are able to check it out. Where can they find you? 
Yeah, awesome. I appreciate it, Jason. I've been a fan of yours for a while, so it's it's always fun to hear that the stuff I'm doing is is catching. Um, I'm most active probably on Instagram, on the socials. It's just at Zach Bitter. Uh, My website, ZachBitter.com, has kind of like a landing page to everything, my podcast, social channels, Strava, all that good stuff. Cool. Well, there are going to be links to that in the show notes and in the description of this episode that folks can check out. Zach Bitter, thanks for being here. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And that's our show. You can learn more about Zach on Twitter at ZBitter and on Instagram at Zach Bitter. You can also listen to his podcast titled Human Performance Outliers. Now, if you're a fan of my work here on the podcast and this conversation, please consider supporting our sponsors. Use their links and discount codes to support the Strength Running Podcast and tell them they should continue sponsoring the show. First, Get yourself some super comfortable performance underwear at cxpsport.com with code CXPSTRENGTH for 20% off. CXP makes the world's most advanced underwear with patented pressure regulation technology. Without getting into uh, too much detail, this is a family show. (laughs) I love my Run XP boxers, which I have in the five inch size. They're snug, they fit well, and most importantly, I just don't think about them when I go running. They're that comfortable. For endurance runners who have to run for a long time, this is the goal, to have gear so good that it just works without any problems. And that's not a coincidence. They've collaborated with ultra runner Zach Miller to create an amazing product. It has no chafe, bonded seams, four-way stretch wicking fabric, and temperature regulation features that keep you cool when you start to get hot. Learn more at cxpsport.com and get your own pair. Be sure to use code CXPSTRENGTH to save 20%. Finally, get yourself 15% off your first purchase at prevenex.com with code JASON15. Prevenex is a unique supplement company that holds itself to standards that the rest of the industry does not. And they're celebrating the release of Muscle Health Plus this month, which is a very unique combination of amino acids, creatine, and ingredients that aid protein synthesis and absorption of amino acids. This is your anti-soreness supplement. It will help you prevent muscle damage, which is particularly important for aging runners who want to protect themselves from muscle loss and recover faster, especially after hard workouts. Now, as is true for all of their products, Prevenex adheres to the highest of standards, Their ingredients are clinically proven to do what they say they're going to do. So yes, Muscle Health Plus has ingredients that are clinically proven to improve protein synthesis and the absorption of amino acids, critical for helping promote lean muscle mass, strength, recovery, and better body composition. I've been consistently impressed with all of their supplements and how committed they are to transparent, clinically proven ingredients. From Joint Health Plus to their meal replacement shake, Narify, that I love after long runs, Immune Support, and now Muscle Health Plus, Prevenex has got you covered no matter what your needs are. And I recently heard from yet another listener who's feeling great. Brian wrote in and said, genuinely love the product and wholeheartedly believe it has helped my recovery process with my running injury. Great to hear, Brian. Get yourself 15% off your first Prevenex purchase by using code JASON15 at checkout. Visit Prevenex.com, that's P-R-E-V-I-N-E-X.com. And just remember, they offer a 30-day money-back guarantee where if you don't feel the benefits on their product, you get your money back, no questions asked. 
All right, my friends, that is the podcast. Thank you for listening. Thanks for being part of this community. And thank you for being so passionate about this sport. We'll talk soon.